So the title of today's sermon, um, as you may have seen in the bulletin, is called The Invisible Hand of Providence. Now, if you have perhaps an economics background like myself, you may have heard of this phrase, the invisible hand, before. I won't go into the nitty-gritty of that. But in terms of the latter word, providence, you may or may not have heard of the word providence before. If you have, probably more likely than not, you may know it as the name of a location. It's the capital and most populous city of the U.S. state of Rhode Island, for any of you who like trivia. Um, and a quick Wikipedia search will tell you that this location, Providence in Rhode Island, was founded in the 17th century by a Reformed Baptist theologian, and he named the area Providence in light of God's merciful providence, which he believed was responsible for revealing such a land or a haven to him and his followers. So the question is, in this person's mind, what exactly did he mean? What was he referring to? Why is he naming a land providence? Why is he saying, oh, it's because of God's merciful providence that I found this particular piece of land? And the reason I ask this question is because as time has progressed, this word providence isn't used as much. I mean, it's not, if you go on, you know, the typical Google search and you see, you know, how often this word is cited today, you'll see from maybe the 1600s is up here and as you go down to present day, it's on a downward trajectory. So it's not common, it's not, it's not commonplace in our conversations from day to day. So what exactly did he mean? And him being uh, a theologian, uh, a, believe, a professing believer, how is this word so etched in his mind, even though it's not a word we even find in the scriptures today? You see, the word providence does not actually appear in most Bible translations, maybe some of the more recent ones, but it doesn't appear in most Bible translations. Yet, it was something that was firmly established in this person's mind, in this minister's mind as a concept. You can almost liken it to the word Trinity. We don't see the, 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 the words Holy Trinity in the scriptures, but in terms of the concept, in terms of the doctrine, that's, that's firmly established in, in every, what should be firmly established in every Orthodox believer's you know, worldview. So, what are we to make of this word providence? How are we to understand it present day? How is it relevant for us today? The first thing to do is to look at the, the word itself and see what we can get there. You see, it's linked to the word provide. As you can see, there's similar letters from the word provide and the word providence. And of course, provide is something that clearly we probably know a lot more what that would mean. And in the second half of the word provide, you know, if you look at the, in the underlying languages there, the, 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 the V-I-D-E in the Latin actually means to see. And the reason I highlight that is because it's not talking about literally seeing stuff like I can see you all right now, but it's more of in the sense of someone saying, I'll see to it. When someone says, I'll see to it, they're not saying to you, oh, I'll see like the letters I-T, I'll see it. No, they're saying that I will sort this out. I will address this. This will be sorted out. I will take care of it. That's the sense you get from, from those, so that particular word. It's an idiom. I'll see to it. 
They're saying that they're going to get something done. They're going to actively accomplish something. And that's the thought we should have in mind when it comes to the word providence. You see, when we now apply it to the Christian worldview, when we apply it to the scriptures, this word is to be used in relation to God. And we're to get the idea that God basically is seeing to something. He's not passively observing something from afar. He's not just sitting in the background just saying, okay, how is this going to pan out? No, he's actively addressing something. He is making sure that this thing will be done. God is actively orchestrating events to accomplish his purposes. One theologian says this, he says, he sees to it that things happen in a particular way. So as such, we do away with any arguments that the world is governed by some sort of you know, fatalistic approach, it's just mere fate, it's just chance. No, we say that God is actively seeing through to every single thing. Now, just to say what providence is and what it isn't, when we speak of God's providence, it's also distinct from God being sovereign. Now, there's overlap, absolutely, but it's distinct. When we think of God's sovereignty, sovereignty points towards the idea of God being in control over every single situation. But providence emphasizes a sort of purpose, a purposeful action in every situation that God will bring about. So you could even argue that maybe providence is God's sort of purposeful sovereignty. Yes, God is in control. And in being in control, uh, things that are happening under his care, but there's a purpose behind it. It's not just mere, it's not just happening at random, happening by chance. Piper uh, um, defines it like this. He says, sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he rules, but in itself it doesn't express any particular design or goal. But that particular design and goal, that, that purpose comes when we think of God's providence. So that's when we're looking into the word itself. But second, we can look at the scriptures and get an idea of this seeing to it. You see, in Genesis 22, when, and you may know the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, and, and our brother Deji preached on this some months ago. And Piper comments here, and he says that whenever the word provided is used in Genesis 22, the Hebrew word underlined it simply is to see. To see, again, the idea of seeing to it. Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb. God will see for himself a lamb, essentially what he's saying. God will see to it. God is, has a sovereign purpose behind what he's doing here. And you see that even in, in the, the, our English translations, if you have maybe a KJV or something, verse 16 in that chapter will say, you know, on this mountain, the Lord has seen. So again, we have the idea of God seeing to something, something happening in a particular way, not a passive bystander, but actively involved. Again, if that's not enough, we can also look to church history for an understanding and, of, of this word providence. We can look for church history for that well-respected and well-defined, um, so uh, well-respected definitions of the word providence. If we're to look at uh, um, some confessions of faith in, in times past or catechism, what they use to basically teach people the scriptures. And one of the catechism we, we, we see it reads, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You see, 
God upholding and governing, that points to God's sovereign power, his control. But by his fatherly hand is not something we should miss because when we think of the purpose behind something, God's seeing to something. He's not seeing it to some random end. No, it's by a fatherly hand. So therefore, all the attributes you would associate with God are brought into it, his love, his care, his kindness, his wisdom. And that's evident in um, the Westminster Confession of Faith because it also speaks of God upholding, directing, disposing, governing all creatures. But then it goes on to say, by his most holy and wise providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Yes, God is the creator. Yes, God indeed is upholding and directing all things, governing all things. But this sovereignty is coloured by his providence. He governs his control by wisdom and a holiness. To the praise of his glory shows that when God orchestrates events for his own ends, through those ends he will ultimately display his glorious wisdom, his power, his justice, and his goodness. And we see this crystal clear in the story of Joseph. In the narrative of Joseph, we see that God is orchestrating events in such a way that we see his goodness, his wisdom, his mercy, his kindness. All these things are laid bare for us to see in this narrative in the latter half um, of Genesis. You see, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel, as his name was changed to. And I don't assume that all of you know the story, a lot of you probably will, but just to quickly summarize, he was one of 12 sons. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, and yet somehow emerged from years of slavery, years of imprisonment, he emerges as the prime minister of Egypt. And from that position, God uses him to preserve his own family during a time of famine. So in one sense, he's almost like a saviour of Israel. And what I want to do for the next sort of 30 minutes or so is just to take us through his life and show us the providence of God in Joseph's suffering, in being sold into slavery, the providence of God in his success, his elevation to prime minister, and the providence of God in the salvation that Joseph brings about. I want us to show us his providence in the suffering, in Joseph's success, and in his salvation. So first, we're taking a step back. We see God's providence in Joseph's suffering. Again, again, this idea of providence, God seeing to something, God accomplishing his own sovereign purposes, but in doing so, manifesting his glory, manifesting his goodness, his wisdom, his kindness, his love. If we take a step back, we look in Genesis 37, for example, and Genesis 37 basically recounts the story of how Joseph was sold into slavery. I won't read through every verse, but I'll just point you to some key parts so we can understand the narrative fully and understand what God is doing behind the scenes. You see, in verses 3 to 4 of Genesis 37, we see that, that Joseph's father, Jacob, or Israel, he makes Joseph, who is 17 years old at the time, a robe of many colours. And what's more, we see that this provokes his brothers to jealousy. You see, it says that Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. 
So that sets the scene here. Joseph is made a coat by his father. His father loves him with such a deep love. And this provokes the brothers to some sort of jealousy and envy. They're angry with him. They hate him. And they can't speak peaceably to him. In, in later verses, in 5 to 8, he tells a dream to his 11 brothers. And this dream is about basically, in one sense, them bowing down to him. They all have like maybe like bags, bags of um, grain or whatever it is. And their bags are bowing down to his grain. So you can imagine, if he's basically saying, I'm going to rule over you. In one sense... And they're getting all the more mad. They're getting even angrier. They're thinking, we don't like you anyway. So why are you not telling us this sort of vibe? That's, that's what's going on right here. They're, they're, the anger is growing towards their brother. And this anger escalates, escalates, escalates. And it escalates into a desire to murder him. They want to murder their brother. But what happens is that Reuben, one of the elders, he intervenes. And they, instead, they throw him into a pit. And Reuben plans to rescue him from that pit, but what happens is that he doesn't get a chance to because when they see some people coming by going to Egypt, they instead they sell him. They sell Joseph into slavery to Egypt for 20 shekels of silver. The desire for murder was replaced by greed instead. And to compound all of this, they've already taken Joseph's robe of many colors, and they basically fake his death. They kill a goat or something like that. They cover it in blood take it back to his father, so you think that Joseph was indeed killed by a wild animal. So I told you before that Joseph being in Egypt actually ended up saving his family. But the sequence of events that God would use to save his family was set in motion by a catalogue of sins. You see, Joseph was sinned against in many ways, and the actions that led to his selling into slavery included fatherly partiality, his father loving Joseph more than all his other brothers, and that provoking jealousy. So we see partiality from, from Jacob's part, as in one sin. We see also the, brothers, the brotherly jealousy in and of itself. Their reaction to one sin was another sin. It compounds it. We see the hatred that they have for, for Joseph, and that, that hatred builds up to the point of wanting to murder him, a murderous hatred. We see the greed that just because they wanted 20 seconds of silver, they sell their brother, their own flesh and blood. They, they, they get rid of him so they can get a bit of money on the sides. And they compound it by lying to their own father about what happened to Joseph. <clears throat> and the scriptures are clear that these are, these are evil actions. It's a sin. This is why Joseph can say in, later on in, in the, what I read earlier in Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The first half, you meant it for evil against me. Joseph later on can see, say clearly, this was evil. This was sinful. This was wrong. So at no point should we approach this narrative thinking that Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He knows that they are angry towards him. He knows that they, have not, they harbor no goodwill for him, only ill will. And they want to see his demise. These are clear actions of sin. And the Bible was very clear about the wages of sin being death. The Bible was very clear about how those who indulge in these actions will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear as day that these are evil actions. And to clear up something quickly, while Joseph knows later on in life that these sins were used by God to accomplish his, his purposes, does this now make God the one responsible for the brother's sin? No. We must, we must make sure that we don't fall into that trap. The exact, the precise workings of how God's 
sovereign providence and, and human responsibility, how they interlingle and work exactly, we can't, you know, it remains mystery to us. But what we should be sure about is that just because God may use the actions of man for his sovereign purposes doesn't now mean that there's no guilt does not mean that we're not responsible for the actions that we do. Joseph's brothers were responsible for their sin. We can be clear about that. God may allow sin to manifest in particular ways for sovereign purposes, but that does not absolve us of responsibility and guilt. So we see in this episode that in God's providence, God can use the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers, the sinfulness of his family members to accomplish his sovereign purposes. But from this part of the narrative, how do we respond? If we understand this to be true, how, how do we now respond in light of the fact that God in his providence can allow sin to, 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 to happen, can allow sin to, to come forth? Do we now sin all the more? Do we indulge us in saying, oh, you know what, God will, God will make it right in his own time. God will bring about something like what happened with Joseph. No, we don't. We don't, we don't follow that false logic. You see, just because God can use our sin for good doesn't give us a license to jump headlong into it and then hope for the best. Rather, we must acknowledge that in the destructiveness of sin and how it divided Joseph's household, there's also hope. You see, what transpired in this episode is enough to destroy many a family. But because we know the overarching purpose and what God was doing behind the scenes, we know that in our own lives, when we see how sin ravages our own lives and sometimes our own faults, there's hope in that situation. It's not beyond repair. It's not beyond the hand of God to use it in a way that would ultimately accomplish his sovereign purposes. You see, when you see the devastating impact on sin on your own life, on whether it's you doing something for yourself or something to someone else, the truth of God's providence should remind you that the Christian operates in a hope-filled reality where God can bring restoration. Jacob himself, Israel himself is an example, because when you see his life, how he deceived his own father to take his older brother's blessing, and then flees from his father, what happens afterwards? Well, shortly he meets his wife from fleeing. I'm not, I'm not saying that you're not going to meet your spouse from fleeing from the sinful episode, but what I'm trying to say is that even in Jacob's sin, God can still bring about goods. Even in Jacob's folly, even in him messing up and doing something that's so destructive, God can still bring about his good from it. A family can be broken by lies, but God can restore. We see the effects of sin in this world, you, how you may mistreat your body and may not, may not be ill, suffering from some physical ailment. God can bring healing. We see the effects of sin in the life of the church and Satan so and sees discord and there's division and there's anger and there's madness and there's bitterness. God can bring unity. The existence of sin, God allowing sin to even occur, does not mean that it's now beyond the hand of God to repair and to restore and to bring about his sovereign purposes. And of course, this hope is most clearly seen in our Lord Jesus Christ, how we see Adam and Eve sinning against God. Literally, all the, imagine, living in a, imagine living a life where your Bible is one command. Your whole Bible, one command. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree. And yet, Adam and Eve sin against God. They break that one command. And you think it's all over, but 
through that, we see that the seed of the woman will cross the serpent said that Jesus Christ will come into the world and he will conquer sin, death, and hell. In God's providence, he uses sin and suffering as a means to accomplish his perfect ends. The cross is the perfect example. So we must have a, a, a right and a proper understanding of providence and how God may even use sin in his providence to accomplish his sovereign ends, which are ultimately for goods. So we see God's providence in suffering, but we also see God's providence in Joseph's success. And I stopped in the narrative at him being sold into slavery. So, Jacob, so Joseph now is now on a journey to basically Egypt. Um, he's sold into slavery, and he now ultimately is um, pursued by someone to work for someone who was in Egypt, and this person is called Potiphar. And Joseph provides us with an example to follow as someone who trusts in God's providence, that God ultimately has a purpose for the situation he's in, even though at the time he had no clue. He had gone through much affliction. And to be fair, his learning wasn't immediate. It took a bit of time for him to sort of clock on to what was going on. But we see in several ways that after he learnt, he began to trust in the Lord and know that ultimately God is orchestrating everything for his good. So the first way we see that him not quite catching on to what was going on first and foremost is that he was, Genesis 39, you see that he's purchased by Potiphar and was very successful in his household. He brought Potiphar a lot of success and was elevated up. Even though he was a slave, he basically ran part of his household. However, he was then placed in prison on basically what was a false accusation of attempted rape when in fact he was the one who even rejected those sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. So not only had he now been a slave, but he's also now a prisoner on a false accusation. We see number two that he tries to get out of prison through his own strength. In chapter 40, he asks the baker who comes into prison to remember him after he interprets his dream that he'll be released and serve Pharaoh, and to basically tell Pharaoh that I was the one that helped with the dream, you know, obviously, get me out of here. But the baker forgets about him. And so we see that after that episode, Joseph is in prison for a total of 30, he's in slavery in prison for a total of 13 years. And so you see, at this point, you would think that Joseph is perhaps justified in maybe wallowing in self-pity. Imagine, for something you have not done, you've been sinned against by your family, you earn favor in your place of work, and then you're lied about, and those things lead you to be in prison and slavery, you would be pretty annoyed. It would be an understatement. And so you'd think that he would now wallow in his own self-pity. He would, he, would, he would be distraught. He would murmur and complain against God and raise his fist and, and question the goodness of God, question the wisdom of God, question God's sovereignty, question all these things. You would think that, you know, he would be um, fuming the fact that he was the one who even refused an adulterous relationship, and that put him in trouble. You'd think that he would be just absolutely um, irritated and fuming with God for the fact that he, did, he pursued righteousness, and it ended up with him being afflicted. And how would you respond to such a traumatic episode? Would you be one who is doing all the things I'm saying now and just be absolutely livid with God, curse God and die as 
Joe's wife said to him when he went to through affliction. Because we see uh, such a, an almost an out-of-this-world response by Joseph. Because when you look at his words later on in life, we can be assured that he had a mindset that was framed by a trust that God was keeping him. A mindset that understood that this idea of providence is real and God is orchestrating, God is seeing to it to accomplish his sovereign purposes. That the invisible hand of God's providence was guiding him. You see, God gives Pharaoh a dream that no one can interpret that ultimately would bring the baker to remember Joseph. And when Pharaoh questions Joseph and summons him, the first thing that Joseph said is that, I'm not the one who can help you. Only God can give you the answer that you desire. In spite of his 13 years in prison, he wasn't thinking, this is now my chance to sort of get what, what's coming to me, to get what I deserve. No, the first words that we record him saying after him, his imprisonment, after being there for, for so long is that, God is the one that will give you the, the, the answer that you want. God is the one that can give you the, the interpretation, the correct interpretation of this dream that you're having. You see, he doesn't lose faith in God. He doesn't lose trust in God. He knows that if I'm to leave this prison, only God can give the interpretation that Pharaoh wants. I can't do it. So that shows despite years of affliction, he's still trusting in God. Despite years of anguish, He's still hoping in God. Despite years of trouble, he still believes that God will see him through, that God is seeing to it. And that's the frame of mind that we ought to have when we also go through affliction. I'm not saying that every story of ours would be like Joseph's uh, sort of rags to riches or from you know, humiliation to exaltation. But whether we know the end or not, we're still called to trust. We're still called to be obedient. We're still called to hold fast to what we know is the fact that God is all wise and he's all knowing and he does all things well. We trust that even though we cannot see what the end may be, we hold fast to that. We are to be, you know, um, steadfast in holding fast to what we know to be true about God. Joseph doesn't wallow in his own self-pity. He doesn't raise his fist against God. Rather, he, sees, he, knows, he shows that God is the one who can give understanding to Pharaoh's dream. He can't do anything. This is why Joseph can say in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph understood that it was the Lord who enabled him to be in the position that he was in. Joseph understood that through him being in the prison, through him doing what he did with the bacon, interpreting his dream, God placed him there strategically as the only person that would be able to answer uh, and give Pharaoh the answer he wanted for his dreams that will now be elevated to where he was later on. Joseph trusted God in the midst of his affliction and he held fast to the reality that indeed um, God is sovereign and he orchestrates events through his glorious providence. You see, one commentator describes Joseph's approach in a threefold manner. He says that when we too, we are placed in situations where we are afflicted like this, our approach has to be, firstly, we have to leave all the writings of, not writings as in writing, but as in doing right, all the writings of wrongs to God. That everything that's gone wrong, we leave God to correct it. Leave all the writings of wrongs to God. 
Two, we must see God's hand in man's malice. We must see God's hand in man's malice. And three, we must respond to affliction with forgiveness and practical affection. You see, Joseph has a wonderful example for how we're to deal with the situation we find ourselves in on a daily basis. This is our example. If we know that God can use sin in his providence, and if we know that he's a good God and our Heavenly Father, then we can be wronged and yet still trust that God will rectify in his time. Not our time, his time. Because our time is immediate. Our time is, you know, we want, we want, we want vengeance immediately. But we forget that God is the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not your place to, to seek vengeance. It's not your place to try to correct everything that goes wrong in your life. That's God's role. Don't seek to be God's. Don't seek to do what only God is meant to do. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It doesn't say that you should repay. How often are we wrong than wanting matters into our own hands? That's not how God operates. Is that the attitude of one who actually is trusting in God's providence? You see, trusting in God's providence will change the way we respond to affliction. Joseph says, despite the 13 years of suffering to his brothers, that God meant their evil for good. Despite the immense power he had to punish them, he responded with love and affection. And these are the marks of someone, of someone whose heart has been changed by grace, someone who understands the doctrine of providence that is indeed God and by his invisible hand orchestrating every event of life. Tim Keller describes it like this. He says that Joseph avoids God's chair, takes God's view, and images God's love. You see, and this is what someone who, who understands God's providence would do. You see, when he says avoids God's chair, basically this stems from, um, in Genesis 50, right beforehand he's, he says those, those, those famous words on God's providence, he says, after they say that they're their servants, he says to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God. What does he mean by that? What he's saying there is that essentially every person who bears a grudge, who's harboring unforgiveness, holding on to anger, they are putting themselves in God's seat. They are, they are basically trying to place themselves in the seats of God. They are basically saying that actually, I'm the one, I have the right and the knowledge and the power to judge you for the sin, to judge you for this situation, when it's only God who has the right and the knowledge and the power to judge perfectly. The reason we can't judge perfectly is because we're also sinful. And the reason why we can't judge um, rightly is because how often when we wanna pass judgment do we even fall into the very same sin? We can't judge perfectly. Someone has wronged you and you now want to get your, your, your come up and you want to get your own back on them. But how often do you now teeter into sin as a result of that? We fall short. We, 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 we feel that, you know, we can, someone, I don't know, someone, your silly example, someone, you're, you're driving home, someone now cuts in front of you from the wrong side sort of thing. You now want to get your own back and get back in front of them. And in, at the end of the day, you're both breaking the law. You've, you've got your own back. But, for you to now win that situation, ultimately you've lost in the eyes of God. Because if you're getting a comeuppance leading you to sin, then in God's eyes, you've lost. You haven't emerged victorious from that situation. You've lost ultimately. You see, only God knows what people deserve. Only God know, knew what Joseph's brothers deserved. Only God knew what those who sinned against them deserved. 
It wasn't Joseph's place to seek vengeance. It's God's place. And we must allow the providence of God to humble us that we are not in control. So therefore, we don't seek vengeance as if it's our own prerogative, our own sovereign prerogative to, to do that, as if it's down to us. No, we leave that into the hands of the Lord. We, we get out of his chair, essentially. And moreover, like I said, only God has the power to judge without becoming evil himself. When we want to judge, we often will fall into sin. Our own judgment is, is, is crooked. It's not bad like the Lord's. He is perfect, we are sinful. If we don't forgive, we become hardened and self-absorbed. But understanding the promise of God helps us with this. We understand that everything that's happening is from his own planning, is from his own um, sovereignty. And we trust him to make all things right in his time. And that's what it means to take God's view, the second point, avoiding God's chair, but taking God's view. Again, it's all about a vantage point, because for us, we see things from the situation we're in. If we're in Joseph's shoes, we're seeing things from being lied against by being thrown into prison, and that's all we can see. It's all that's around us. But in the same way that you can't appreciate the beauty of a landscape by just standing in front of a field, once you go on a plane, you're flying, you can see the seas and the grass, and you can appreciate, wow, this is beautiful. That's why everyone's always taking snaps when they go on holiday and putting it on their WhatsApp or their Instagram status. Oh, you know, I'm on a plane going somewhere, look at the sea and all that sort of stuff from the, from the plane window. Anyway, um, the point is not that. The point is essentially that you can appreciate the beauty of what's going on from taking a, a different view, from taking God's view. God sees everything. God is essentially standing at the highest pinnacle of the world and seeing how absolutely everything is panning out. And we must take a step back from where we are, take a deep breath, and think through how God sees everything, because God sees everything through the lens of his providence. From the end to the beginning, he sees everything and acts accordingly. And we don't have that view ourselves. So we, shouldn't, we mustn't rush the judgment, but trust in his providence that he sees all things, he knows all things, and he does all things well. So we avoid God's chair, we take God's view, and we are to image God's love. Again, Joseph doesn't attempt to put himself in the place of God. He isn't vindictive. But he does the opposite of what society today will tell us to do. Because when you're sinning against, society will tell us to get your own back, to sort them out, to deal with them. You know, fight fire with fire, to do all these sort of things, get revenge, all that, all that sort of stuff. Joseph shows immeasurable love to his brothers. Love that we cannot even fathom because why would he want to ultimately give them the food that will save their souls and preserve their household after all they did to him? had all the power in the world to punish him, but he didn't do that. He showed a great love to them. And that's to show that Christianity is countercultural. When the world is telling you to do one thing, we realize that the faith that we ultimately profess will say something else. It runs against the culture. It goes against the grain. Imagine what it takes to love those who have hated you and casted you aside. It's grace. Only grace can help us to do that. And we must look at Joseph's example and look at how his understanding of God's providence and seek to ultimately embody that. You see, Joseph's story shows us that God's quote-unquote silence is not absence. When we feel that there's nothingness, it's often in those moments that God is working most things for our good. Again, prison for 13 years. Joseph thinks that there's silence. God has forsaken him. No. God was working things out for his good in those moments, 
even though he couldn't see it at the time. And therefore, we too must hold tightly to scriptures like Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. We can't see it. We can't always see it. But we can rest assured that all things mean, includes imprisonment, false accusation, being hated by others, being cast aside. It includes all those things. God will still work together for good. Why? Because those who, are, who, who place faith in Christ are called according to his purpose. They love him. We must hold fast to that, that truth. Joseph was brought from the depths of prison and slavery, and he was given a prominent position under Pharaoh. But we see that during that transitionary period, he was trusting in God's providence. And for the final point, God's providence in the salvation, this is the salvation that Joseph helps to bring about, essentially. We must realise that arguably the best statement in the, in the scriptures of God's providence doesn't end that God meant it for good. It goes beyond that. It says, what you meant, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is the salvation that God brought about through Joseph. You see, yes, Joseph interprets the dream that Pharaoh has about a famine that was to come and the seven prosperities followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph's elevation from prison to prime minister helped him to devise a plan to store more grain in those years of prosperity to prepare for the years of famine. Joseph's family come to Egypt because they have no grain in, during the famine, seeking to purchase some things from him. And ultimately, Joseph will reveal himself to them, provide for them, and this act preserve the people of Israel, who God had already promised who would make a great nation. So with the benefit of looking back, we can know for sure that God's purpose in Joseph's suffering and his success was to bring about salvation for Israel. The greed and jealousy of Joseph's brothers, the lies of Potiphar's wife, the elevation to prime minister, all these things played a part in the salvation of Israel. That is God's providence. And, and this foreshadows the greatest example of, of God's providence in history. We see that God was pleased to use this event. He was pleased to use Adam and Eve's sin. He was pleased to use Israel's slavery into Egypt, their redemption from Egypt, their roaming in the wilderness, the entry into the promised land, the period of the judges, so, David, Solomon's reign as king, he used all these episodes for one, that one purpose of bringing about salvation for everyone. All these things were used that Jesus Christ would come into the world to deal with our sin. And that is God's providence. Um, and, and at the time, they didn't really see it like that. But if Israel were not preserved, then how would Jesus come through that lineage? You see, God's from eternity past to eternity future, is orchestrating events for his own sovereign purposes. And we see that every single event we see unraveling in the scriptures, God is using, and he used for, to bring Jesus into the world. And in Jesus coming into the world, he deals with my sin, he deals with your sin, he deals with all of our sins. And so therefore, when things are, are coming about in our lives, we have to realize that if we know the greatest example of God's providence, using the um, 
the, 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 the violence and the beating and the cross, the crucifixion of Christ to bring about good for us, then how can we not in much smaller situations and such, such tiny situations not trust in his providence that he will use it in such a way for our own goods? God has brought about the greatest good for us, dealing with us in him and bringing an everlasting life as you see unraveling in the scriptures. How can we not trust him for every other episode in our life? He's dealt with our greatest need, that being salvation. If he's dealt with it through the lenses of his providence, how can we not trust him for every single other episode? You see, Joseph's story, it basically foreshadows it. It points that God brought about through his affliction, his suffering, his success, God brought about salvation for Israel. But that is such a small scale compared to what God has been doing from all of redemptive history to now to bring salvation for all those that would believe in him. The purpose of all these things is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. For us to see our need of him from Genesis to Revelation, the province of God directs the entire course of redemptive history. And how do we respond to this? This truth, how do we respond to it? When we understand God's providence right, it should intensify our worship. It should strengthen our faith and our convictions. It should equip us to advance God's mission on this earth, to share Christ with people, knowing that he brought about all these events in history for this very purpose. And so just to conclude now, we've seen examples of God's providence in times past. We've applied it to our lives present day. But what now of the future? What about looking forward? How are we to understand God's providence as we um, onward go in this life? <clears throat> you see, Christians believe that Jesus came into this world to die for our sins, but not, but not only that, he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell. He ascended to heaven to set the right hand of the Father. But it doesn't end there. Yes, he sits there, he's interceding for us. But we are not made perfect in this life. We too will ultimately grow old and perish. But Jesus will come back again to consummate everything, to bring everything to its perfect end. And we must live in light of that. You see, when we say that God is operating through redemptive history, yes, the purpose, he's, the purpose of that was to ultimately bring Jesus into this world that we ultimately would be saved from our sin. But Jesus is going to make everything perfect in this time. We still live in a world of sin, of suffering, of death, of pain, of toil, of all these things. But God is going to, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more soul, where God will wipe away every single tear. Jesus has come back again. And as those who have an understanding of God's, God's providence, of how he's working all things to accomplish his sovereign purposes, we mustn't live in light of that reality. We mustn't live as if Jesus is not going to come back. We mustn't live as if, you know, like, you know we, we sort of made it. We've caught the game. We, we know everything's going to happen. No. Jesus is going to return. And we must be ready for that. And we must live accordingly. Trusting in God's providence means that we live in light of what God is doing. We know that the victory of, over sin and Satan is sure and that Jesus will be glorified and has been glorified, and will be glorified in a more perfect way. But we must live like it now. 
So when we look at the scripture and it says that the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. And once the gospel is referred to all the ends of the earth, then the end will come. We realize that Christ will think will consummate things and bring things to a perfect end when we are continuing in sharing the gospel with all the nations. Everyone must hear of this wondrous truth, and then the Lord will come. We must continue to plant and to water and that God will bring the increase. We must continue to bear in mind what Titus 2 says, that the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You see, we're to live in a particular way while we wait for him to come back in glory. We're to live self-controlled, upright lives, godly lives in the present age. Why? Because he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness and to purchase a people zealous for good works. So we see that there's implications here if we trust in the providence of God that part of God's sovereign purpose is to bring Jesus back into this world, to bring an end to everything, and that will be received up with him and be with him forever in glory, where there'll be, again, we'll be in a new creation, no more sin, suffering, and any of these things. If we know this to be true, and if we believe that this is true, then we'll live accordingly, that our lives now will not contradict the purpose for which Christ has come, the purpose of the people zealous for good works. Jesus Christ is coming again, and we must live as those who are ready for that. And if we live as those who trust in God's providence, that trust that God indeed is seeing to it, he's accomplishing his sovereign purposes, then that will help us to live and to be ready for Christ's return. Amen.